Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The Intercooler podcast is sponsored by JBR Capital, one of the UK's leading car finance specialists. Now, we only partner with like-minded organisations who really understand what it means to be a car enthusiast. And JBR Capital is a perfect fit for us. It's run by people who really love cars. And importantly, vehicle finance is all JBR Capital does. That alone is what the company exists to do. So whether you're looking to fund a classic sports car, supercar or hypercar, see what JBR Capital can do for you. And it's not just about very high-end, expensive unobtainium. In fact, the minimum borrowing is £25,000 and the average £80,000. Head to JBR Capital on social media or jbrcapital.com online and tell them the intercooler sent you. Right, let's get on with this week's podcast. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 95 of the podcast, everybody. I'm Dan Prosser with Andrew Frankel. And this week, Andrew, sometimes we pick one significant figure from the car yeah. industry or the world of motorsport, and we just talk about them um, for the entire yeah. episode. This time, we've chosen Professor Gordon Murray, CBE. Um, yeah. His F1 cars won 56 Grand Prix, eight world championships. He was an F1 designer for 20 years. Only two teams will come to those. But he's clearly recognized as one of the great F1 designers. And he's worked with multiple world champions like Nicky Lauda, Nelson Piquet, Etten Senna, Alan Prost. And later in his career, he's done more stuff on the road car side. As we know, the McLaren F1. Um, yeah. And now hypercars carrying his own name. Now, all of that makes... Professor Gordon Murray, CBE, a good podcast topic at any time, but he's an especially good podcast topic this week, isn't he? Because last week we saw the T33, the Gordon Murray Automotive T33, which is the baby brother to the T50, and you've seen it. Yeah, I've seen it. It's interesting to think of it as a sort of baby brother when it's still got a 3.9 litre V12, which goes to over 11,000 revs. 
Um, yeah, I, I, I went. I went, and I mean, I know a few a few journalists have done this, um, but I went and spent a couple of hours with him um, two three weeks ago. The story's been sort of under embargo for a while. Um, and what? I, well, I mean, I'll get to the car in a minute. But what I loved about the whole thing was, you know, you and I go to a lot of car launches, and there is so much faff, isn't there? There's are so much. Um, you know, razzmatazz and, you know, drum rolls and whizzy videos and fanfares and, you know, introductions and speeches and, you know, you're in some posh hotel or they've hired an aircraft or whatever. I mean, I can remember going to the launch of some Porsche and they had Robert Downey Jr. and the um, Army Hammer. I don't think he'll be doing many more Porsche launches um, and, and just, you know, Celeb Central and all this. And you go to a Gordon Murray launch and it's literally... It was Gordon and me in an underground car park and the car. That was it. Absolutely stripped back. Um, there were there were no. I mean, you know, a, a, a nice person met me and took me down there, but after that they disappeared. And it was just Gordon and me and the car. It wasn't under a cover. Um, they had they had rigged up a. There was a sort of there was a bit of flex trailer across the floor to a lock to, to a socket so that the, so that the lights could be illuminated. Um, on the car but that was literally it that was the sole concession to presentation and I just thought that was so cool because it's just you know all the rubbish is just stripped away and you know and at the end of it you got a car and its designer and and I have to say when I first saw the T50 I think it I think the T50 looks you know it's nice that it looks quite like the F1 and it's you know it looks quite personal I wouldn't call it a particularly pretty car T33 is gorgeous it's just really, really lovely. I think it looks and really striking, particularly at the rear, with that great arc that goes. With it does. It does. Yeah, exactly. And 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 you know, Gordon's the first to say that you know it's it's you know bits of it are homages to his favourite sports cars of the nineteen sixties. So you can see you know bits of Porsche nine hundred four in the back of it. You can see Ferrari two fifty LM over the rear wheel arch. I think I can see some Lotus twenty three around the front. Anyway, so the, the, you know it, it'll say different things to different people, but. Um, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, even the McLaren F1, which I look at now and I think that's, a, you know, A, that was Peter Stevens who, you know, did the styling work on that. But even that is not, it's not an absolutely drop-dead gorgeous car like, I don't know, a 288 GTO is. Um, it's, a, it's an attractive car and it's a purposeful looking car. But this is the first Gordon Murray car I've seen, which I actually think is, is genuinely beautiful. And Gordon said to me during, the, during our time together that he is now as interested in design as he is in engineering. Um, and I think it shows. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we're not we're not going to spend long on it because you know we know that, you know lots of people have written lots of stuff about it, but it is the sort of GT version of the T dot of the T. Well, they also have a dot in it, doesn't they? T dot fifty, or well, I think we'll just call it the T thirty three. But you know, Gordon's idea of a GT is still a car with a you know, naturally aspirated V twelve and it, which does over eleven thousand RPM and has got over six hundred horsepower and I mean, a manual gearbox. I mean, it's just it's just pure, isn't it? And it's just proper um and yeah he's going to do a hundred of these then he'll do a hundred of another variant which will probably be a sort of more track oriented version of it and then he'll do a hundred what he described somewhat somehow open to the air so i'm guessing that'll be a target because i can't see gordon engineering a fully convertible roof um and it weighs 1100 kilos i'm not sure whether that's dry or not i mean if it's if that's a curb weight that's lighter than mclaren f1 which is pretty remarkable um it's got power steering um you can get it with an automatic gearbox although gordon being gordon this is no normal automatic gearbox it's a fully robotized automated manual made by x-track um 
and he did say he, he did say to me that he felt he made a bit of a mistake because he sort of thought he ought to he, he, he kind of had to offer this because this is the first of his cars which is fully federalized and is going to be sold all over the world including in the states without sort of any restrictions being placed upon it so he thought well we I better do a, do, do a two-pedal one he thought well how can i do this and he came up with a way which works and so far only three people have ordered one that's um, an expensive so, error isn't it <laughs> uh you didn't sound terribly bothered by it um so yeah so that's the t that's the t dot or t not dot 33 it costs um, 1.37 million quid so it's about a million less than the t50 which of course yes. makes it affordable to the likes of you and me not um it's still a fearsomely expensive car isn't it and yeah delivery's due to start in 2024 i don't mean to be sort of willfully contrary um but of the two, the T33 and the T50, somehow the 33 just appeals so much more. I think perhaps because it looks prettier to my eye. Um, yeah. the, the fan is a remarkable thing on the T50, the fan at the back of the car. Amazing yeah. bit of engineering, I'm sure, but it looks a bit odd. Um, I just think the 33 looks spectacular. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, you know, to, to me, Gordon's cars are always about the driving, aren't they? Um, and I think a T50 is just going to be, it's just going to be, in terms of, driver involvement and certainly by modern standards it's going to be a new level it may not be the fastest thing that's ever come out but i don't really care about that um i think you know you just look at the spec um did you hear it going around goodwood uh, last year yeah i mean the noise of the thing um you know manual gearbox is just going to be um frankly if if i ever get to drive either of them i will I, i will be a very happy boy indeed so yeah i mean i know what you mean i think I think I would use, I mean, this is just fancy land, isn't it? But I'd use a T33 more. Um, and also, <clears throat> and also, but there is that other thing, isn't there? There is that, that, you know, because it is so beautiful, there is that dimension. Um, and I mean, I'm not someone who cares particularly how cars look. I'm just so much more interested in how they drive. However, you know, cars like that aren't going to be used that often. Um, and it's, it would just be a nice thing to have there, isn't it? Just be able to go and look at it. And I mean, this sounds so poncy doesn't it but um it does have you know it, there's another reason to love a t33 isn't there um and it ain't going to be slow and it's not going to be rubbish to drive um and it's still going to be incredibly pure and it also may be um that you know mere mortals like us can drive a t33 to a greater percentage of its maximum maximum potential than we could a t50 so we may actually get more out of driving it as well i mean who knows it's all sort of you know fairly pointless speculation at the moment but um yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to any chance I get to get anywhere near either of them. Yeah, T33 versus T50 is fantasy land, isn't it? As you say, it's a bit like having a favourite yeah. harbour in Monaco. <laughs> okay, well, this is this podcast is about Gordon Murray, and we're gonna it's going to be quite biographical. We'll trot through his early career, through his early life, um, but also, you know, we're going to talk about some of your impressions. You know, you've known the man a long time. Um, yeah. You've driven a few of his cars, road and race, which is great. Yeah. So we can really get stuck into that stuff. Um, he was born 18th of June, 1946 in Durban, South Africa to Scottish immigrant parents, um, father, a motorcycle racer and later involved in racing cars as well. I I I think he does consider himself and I don't want to speak for him. I think he does consider himself to be a Scot and certainly at sort of posh Goodwood balls and that sort of thing. He's always in a kilt. Um, so I so I can't just jump it. I can't believe. I mean, I know that he is. I just can't believe that he's seventy five. Because frankly, you know, if I'm you know if if I'm lucky enough to be spared until I'm seventy five, you know, if I'm able to just sort of you know 
sit in a pub and have a pint and talk rubbish, then, you know, I'll be happy. You know, and he is out there. And it's like no one's told him that he's kind of, you know, knocking on a bit because he has lost none of his drive. I mean, I've known the bloke since he was in his mid-40s. He has lost none of his drive, none of his ambition. Um, he is fit as a flea. I mean, he, he, he is exactly the same. Part of the fact, I guess he's a little bit greyer. Um, he's the same person now as he was 30 years ago. It is absolutely remarkable. Um, yes, I don't know what gene pool he came out of, but I wish I'd dived into it. Anyway. Good Scottish stock. And he, exactly. yeah, I mean, for, for the, the, the T33 launch, he clearly spent what looks like a full week or two weeks in an underground car park talking to journalists. Um, yeah, it's an amazing amount. He it would be so easy for him just to get someone else to do all that stuff, but I guess he understands that people are buying these cars because of him, um, and so he's willing to put in the time and the effort, which is great, yeah. even at his age. Um, so he he was artistic as a boy. I've done a lot of reading and a lot of sort of watching other bits and pieces about him. Um, he was artistic as a boy, and he he said that at school he spent lessons drawing electric guitars and suspension systems. So there you see that that's a real insight. Artistic, um, yeah. drawing electric guitars because he's a real music buff. Um, he is. Drawing suspension systems. So evidently all of those elements were in him from a very early age. And his, his father took him to races in South Africa when he was a boy. And that's really what got him excited about motorsports. <clears throat> um, it was much later in his sort of adolescence, though, that it occurred to him he might be an engineer. And actually he wanted to be a racing driver who didn't yeah. at that age. Um, couldn't afford a car. So he built his own, a Lotus 7 kind of sports car. Um, yeah. Apparently it was lighter and stiffer than a 7, though, and he called it a T1, and he raced it. Um, and that, this is actually quite important. He did race quite seriously when he was a young man. Um, and he says now that this is key. This was always key to his career as an engineer, as a car designer. He says it made him a better designer, and he talks about others who had a similar background like Chapman, Colin Chapman at Lotus raced. Um, and it means if you are able to understand what a car is telling you yourself, you can also understand what yeah. the driver is trying to communicate with you. It yeah. makes you, I suppose, a more empathetic designer and engineer. Yeah. Um, it's, in, it's interesting. On, 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 sorry, on, on just, on, just on that very point. Um, and this may have even held back some of his designs but right up until I think the very early 1980s, he always designed his Formula One cars so he could drive them. Now, the problem with that for Gordon is he's, he's my height, he's six foot four, he might even be six foot five. Um, and, you know, if you're going to design a Formula One car that a six foot five person can drive, it's going to be a very different kind of Formula One car that's been designed for the, you know, the five foot nothing jockeys that tend to race Formula One cars. Um, and. Yes, but, but I think it was the same thing. I think he wanted to be able to feel what the driver was feeling in order to be able to best understand how to engineer a car to suit them. That's really interesting. It also, it also must have been quite good fun to be able to drive your Formula One car. <laughs> yeah, an added benefit there. Um, <clears throat> so he came to England in late 1969. He wanted to work in motorsport. And if you want to do that, you have to come to England, don't you? In F1, certainly. Yeah. Um, so he spent six months trying to get a job. And in June 1970, he eventually got one. He turned up at Brabham, um, was interviewed by Ron Toronac, who was expecting somebody to come through the door for an interview, offered Gordon the job straight away. And 15 minutes later, the bloke who was actually supposed to be turning up for the interview walked in through the door and found that there wasn't a job anymore. So an enormous stroke of good fortune. Do we know who it was and what happened to them? That would be the story. Well, I did read about it. I could it. have been Gordon Murray. The, the bloke 
um, did introduce himself to Murray a few years ago somewhere and said, you took my job at Brabham. <laughs> Apparently it was quite good humoured though. Good. I hope, he had a de- I hope he had a decent life. Yeah, not quite. Um, and as the story goes, Murray immediately proved himself doing quite complex things, even as a young man, things like stress analysis, suspension plots, Ackerman steering plots. Um, and he says that as a result of all that, he was flavour of the month at Brabham. Um, he worked with Jack Brabham in his final year. Um, and soon after that, Bernie bought the team. He bought out Jack's shares yep. and then quite quickly bought out Ron's shares as well. Um, now, we, we, there's an interesting sort of tangent here. Uh, so Ron being Ron Toronac, not Ron Dennis. So anybody think we got the Ron wrong? Um, there's an interesting tangent here. So Murray says that Brabham was actually a bit of a mess back then. This is the early, early 70s. Um, so much so that when Alan Decadme approached him, asking him to design a three-litre Le Mans car. Ah, yes, 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 yes. The Duckhams. He, that's the right. Duckhams. Murray decided yeah. to go with Alan and shook his hand, did a deal, because he wanted to build a car from scratch and he wanted to go to Le Mans. And Decadene yeah. was offering him those things. I think he was... <laughs> He was prepared to pay him £500 to design a car from scratch to go to Le Mans. 500 whole pounds! Bananas, isn't it? Um, But Murray took it. And immediately after that, Bernie fired everybody and made Gordon Murray chief designer, which put Murray potentially in a slightly sticky sticky position. But Bernie said, well, you'll be our chief designer and you can moonlight for Decadme. You can do it in your own free time. Um, And he did. And that car... Yeah, the Duckham's car in 72 at Le Mans. It ran fourth for a while behind three Matras and ahead of the works Porsches and Alphas. And that car, he says, put him on the map. Yeah, I mean, they had an amazing run, given that it was literally, it was just something that Gordon knocked up in their spare time. Um, it was powered by a Cosworth DFV, um, the Formula One engine. Now, I think that was probably a slightly detuned version because those things weren't good at lasting 24 hours at race speed um it looked very much like the ferrari 312 pb which was the absolute go-to car of that era yeah um, sort of open top flat deck exactly um now you know ferrari that year won every single round of the championship apart from one which was Le Mans, uh which they didn't enter so there were 11 rounds and the ferrari won 10 of them um but actually gordon would say that the duckham's car although you know i guess visually a bit similar was a completely different i'm sure it was a completely different design um but they did amazingly well he the shared it with his mate chris craft um you know uh, both fine drivers and you know to be up there you know behind you know in fourth place you know with that lot out there and i think they you know, they finished the race didn't they i think they came 11th or 12th um it's uh, uh, given the race that they were in, given the resources that they had, and given this was just you know this was just their first ever attempt at it, um, with a brand new car, uh, designed by you know still a pretty much unknown designer called Gordon Murray, um, absolutely amazing. Age twenty five, I think he was at the time. Yeah, he would have been. Yeah, isn't exactly that right. astonishing? <laughs> I think <laughs> that's really incredible. He was clearly a genius, wasn't he, from the get go? Yeah. Um, so before we talk about the Brabham years. <clears throat> in F1. I want to move on and talk about his philosophies as an engineer, as a designer, and his influences. Um, Yeah. And this is a direct quote. Chapman was my absolute hero, Colin Chapman. I admired his approach, his fanaticism for lightweighting, 
and I loved yeah. Lotus cars, both the road and the racing cars. So what is, yeah. what are, what is his philosophy? Lightweight construction through compact dimensions as much as anything. And as a result of that, clever packaging. They go hand in yeah. hand. If you're going to have a small, lightweight car, you better package it well. Otherwise, it's going to be a nightmare, isn't it? So he's really into lightweight construction and really into clever packaging. Um, and you see that throughout his cars, the, the cars he owns as well, and the cars even, yeah, now, two, the, even the road cars now that he likes. Yeah, he's got two Alans, hasn't he? Um, he once said to me, even, despite the fact that... It, I think, Did he go for a job at Lotus and there just wasn't one available? I think when he first came over, I think the first thing he did was he, he, he went over there and, uh, and they said, terribly sorry. Um, he said to me, cut me and I bleed Lotus. Um, and I think what he means by that is he bleeds Chapman. Um, it's, it, it, it's not just lightweighting, although that is probably the thing that Gordon is most known for, as it was... Um, Colin, it's, it's also it's just clever design. I mean, one of the things that Chapman did so well was getting one component to do more than one job. So he'd use you know half shafts as um, as suspension components, um, and you know, and, and, and he'd use the engine and the gearbox as fully stressed chassis members and that sort of thing. And, and Gordon would have looked at that, um, and he would you know, and and you only have to look at. The McLaren F1, I think, is, you know, the easiest to understand. And, you know, this is a car which cast the same shadow as a 911, um, despite the fact it had a 6.1 litre V12 engine in it. Um, and it sat three people, you know, properly, not just sort of useless rear seats like the 911 has got. And it had decent luggage space and it would do 240 miles an hour. Um, and, you know, that tells you all you need to know about. And you go, go and look at the T33 and look at how that is put together, um, where the, how the luggage bins. I mean, it's got, I can't remember, it's got like sort of, you know, 240 litres of luggage space in it. Um, and it's, it's just smart. It's just clever. He just, what he doesn't do is allow himself to be limited by what's been done before. He's not really very interested in that. He just thinks, well, OK, this is the problem. I need a car to do this particular job. This is the sort of size it needs to be. And he just doesn't think, well, OK, the engine obviously has to go there or we have to do this this the way or that that way because that's the way that it's always been done. He doesn't think like that. He just thinks, what's the best way to do it? And and it's, uh, yeah, and, it, and, and, and it's remarkable. Um, and, and we see it in, in, in some of the innovations he had in Formula One, which we'll probably come into, onto, like the fan car uh, and that sort of thing. You can just see that he's, you know, there's a bloke thinking about things in a very different way in exactly the same way that Chapman um, thought about things in a very different way. And, you know, absolutely, as with Chapman, some worked, some didn't. But he was always, and is to this day, always just thinking outside the box, pushing and pushing and pushing. Because he would say to you, if we were only ever did what had been done before, you'd never do anything new. Yeah, he's a proper pioneer. Um, yeah. And he... He loves, he's really turned on by clever design and engineering. His wife still has a first-generation A-class, or at least did 18 months ago. Um, oh, there loved, you go. He loved earlier Spasses, the Renault Kangoo, simple, effective cars that know precisely what they're trying to do. Clever packaging. Yeah. And we know he's a good bloke because he has an A110. And that would be the last there mention of the A110. Um, no, actually, I, I, well, actually, you say that. I mean, I, I, I spent quite a long time talking to Gordon about his A because, he, because it's, it's, it's his daily driver. So when I went to meet him at his new, whatever it is, 54-acre campus outside Wind, Windlesham, um, 
you know, there was his A110 part there. Um, do you remember when he was developing the F1? Uh, he had an NSX at the time, um, which he loved for all the reasons we talked about, because it was clever and light and everything else. And also it um, it was that kind of sort of, you know, everyday usability that he was trying to inject into the F1. Um, and the NSX was very much the inspiration for the F1 um, in, so, in so many ways, obviously not the ultimate level of performance or anything else, but that was the kind of thought, but, you know, Gordon thought, well, okay, this is the kind of thing we're interested in. And I said to him, is the A110 to the T33 what the NSX was to the F1? And he said, absolutely. That was the car that, yeah, so, so you know, the A110 has informed an awful lot of the T33's design. And if you're our contributor, David Tuig, uh, who engineered the A110, I'd be pretty bloody happy about that. That's fantastic, isn't it? That's really yeah. very cool. Um, another one of his core philosophies is that performance, certainly on the road car side, performance is a byproduct of good design and good engineering. It's just something that yeah. happens when you have the right yes. engine in a light car with good aero. Yes. It's not yes. something ever to strive for. It doesn't care about top speeds. doesn't care about acceleration figures or lap times just that the car is involving to drive direct quote from him here yeah it's all completely irrelevant if the thing isn't enjoyable to drive cars are all about feedback he says that's why it took that's why it took them four years to find out how fast the f1 would go i mean they did they did let us and only us i say us being autocar do a full road test on the f1 um because i think they felt for his for, for posterity and also to stop people asking the bloody questions all the time, um, they felt there there was a need for a for one set of numbers on the car, um, so they let us do those. Um, but for himself, he couldn't care less about that, and he couldn't care less about that for the T fifty or the T thirty three or I'm sure any of the other cars he's done in the past or will do in the future. So you've mentioned road testing the F one. Um, you gathered yeah. the numbers, the, the the acceleration figures that we're all familiar with. Um, and he was there on the day, was he? Yes, absolutely. Um, he was there. Well, he was there throughout, um, you know, because it wasn't just a day. Um, you know, we did the day down there, uh, at, sorry, down there at Bruntingthorpe. Um, and then we went up to the North Yorkshire Moors to photograph the car and to drive it properly. And he was there for all of that. So, yes, you know, we had a... And, and I've talked about this in the podcast before, so I'm not going to go on about it. But the, the terrible thing, um, but indeed the remarkable thing, was that day we met at Bruntingthorpe, um, was the day after Senna got killed. Um, and it was May the 2nd, 1994. And, you know, everybody there, um, you know, Jonathan Palmer was there to help out. Um, and Gordon was obviously there. And there'd be lots of people from McLaren who'd, you know, worked very closely with Ayrton. Um, and they were just total professionals. We didn't even know they were going to show up. We turned up there kind of more in hope than expectation that they were going to be there. But the trucks were there and the cars were there and Gordon was there and everyone was just a total professional. And then I started thinking, well, if you think about Gordon's career in Formula One, you know, from, you know, when he first, I guess he started getting, you know, properly involved in the early 70s up until um, the late 80s. Um, you think that era that he lived through, particularly in the 70s, think how many people he would have known um, who didn't survive um, and I, I guess you have to harden your heart to that sort of stuff to a bit and there has to be you know you come however you're feeling on the inside um, you know there's always going to be another race to go to you, you know you just got to get on with it haven't you um, and you know because he comes from that era 
um, you know, I'm sure he is and was very good at kind of putting all those emotions in a box for as long as he needed to to get whatever job that he was doing done because otherwise you'd have been hopeless in Formula One in that era. You know, if you couldn't cope, um, you wouldn't last very long. So, yeah. Um, but it was, yeah. So, so, so it was the most bittersweet of experiences because, you know, Ayrton was all our hero too and we couldn't believe it. We turned up utterly shell-shocked. Um, and, okay, I'd spent a bit of a day with him um, but, you know, I couldn't say that I knew Senna at all um, and nobody else had ever met him and we were all heartbroken. So goodness knows what those guys must have been feeling. Who knew him intimately. Um, yeah. Yeah, amazing. So on the day, do you remember Gordon being particularly concerned about the numbers you were gathering, the 0-60 time? Would he send you yeah, out he was again? Very, he, he was very concerned that I went really fast on it. <laughs> Good. <laughs> in fact, to this day, I should look up here. Um, it's almost worth pausing the podcast because somewhere up here on these shelves, uh, I have a brochure, um, which is signed by Gordon. Um, uh, I did, so I did 211 in the car that day. Um, Jonathan Palmer, I think, did 217. Um, so I was, you know, 211, 270, that's quite a big difference between those two numbers. Uh, but that was as fast as I felt comfortable going. Um, and I've got this brochure and it's, and it's literally, and, they, and he's just signed it. He goes, and it's the date, whatever it is, the ESL, 2nd of May, 1994, 211 MPH, exclamation mark, best wishes, Gordon Murray. Um, so yeah, no, he just, that's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. And um, he just wanted to make sure that we understood the car. Um, and what it was trying to achieve and you know what we did that day was Bruntingthorpe as you know has got a terrible surface Um, and so the actual numbers coming out the machine weren't that great because we just couldn't get the car off the line you know with you know with those sort of tyres they had back then obviously you know no traction control uh, let alone any bloody launch control or anything clever like that Um, and so the sort of 0-60 times were coming in at you know Whatever, I can't remember, but you know, sort of three eight, three nine, because it was just you know wheel spinning all the way. So what we actually did, and I'll defend this to my dying day, is we went to Millbrook, which is where we normally. The only reason we'd gone to Bruntingthorpe is you can't do two hundred at Millbrook. Um, so we normally recorded. So the surface on which we normally recorded the figures for all everything else we ever tested was at Millbrook. So what we did was we then went to Millbrook and did, I think, sort of naught to 100 runs where there was a bit of traction. And then we grafted the two sets of figures together. So we came up with, in my view, entirely legitimate um, acceleration figures, but they did come from two separate venues. Um, and, yeah, um, he was just there. I don't remember him being in any way pushy. I think, you know, he was a professional, and I think he probably mistakenly thought we were a bunch of professionals too, and we were there to do a job. Um, he was there to make sure um, we had the best, chance of getting that job done and he just let us get on with it um and then i can remember we went up to north yorkshire uh we stayed in helmsley um just off the blakey ridge road which you will know um did you know we did crazy stuff up there i mean there are photographs of the car in the air up there and um yeah i drove it up i drove it up there um and i was what was i at the time 28 um and i can remember i can remember getting it there and giving the key to someone and just being overwhelmed this by this colossal sense of relief um because it was so much faster than anything i'd driven um i mean i can remember you just come out of a slow corner and there'd be a straight and you just think oh i'll just give it a tickle now and you look down at the speedometer and some utterly ridiculous number would be looking back at you um and 
you know, and you do that for a few hours. And at the end of it, you just think, well, I've got it here. Nothing's gone wrong. Thank goodness for that. It wasn't sort of, you know, joy or elation. It was just relief um, that the most important road test that Autocar was ever going to conduct, certainly at the time that I was there. Um, if it did go wrong, it wasn't going to be me who made it go wrong. In fact, it all went fantastically well. So, yeah, and Gordon, I just remember, was um, relaxed, cheerful. I think he knew he was completely confident in the product. Um, I think he knew it was absolutely a new level there hasn't been another car in my experience which has expanded the envelope of road car ability to anything like the the same extent maybe you know valkyrie or project one will do that who knows um but in my experience today nothing has moved the game on further or faster than the f1 did and gordon knew it so he was he was quite chilled well you might have to do it all over again when he lets you have a go in a t50 um yes please (laughs) so we've mentioned that his hero was colin chapman Another one of his heroes was Bob Dylan. And we just, just have to mention quickly that he is an enormous music buff. And perhaps as a result of that, he's got a, a hippie-ish streak in him, hasn't he? Um, yeah, definitely. back in the day, long hair, big moustache, yeah. floral shirts, those yeah. rock band T-shirts. Uh, didn't necessarily yeah. fit into the sort of F1 mould, especially not a McLaren under Ron Dennis, um, yeah. which even then had a very corporate image. Um, but let's get into the Brabham years. Um, yeah. I'm conscious that we're only just starting on his F1 career and we're more than, an, half, more than an hour half an hour in. in. So we'll skip along a little bit. He was in his mid-20s in 1973 when he became chief designer at Brabham. He says, I don't yeah. remember being worried at all, um, the hubris of youth. Um, and some of his most successful, most famous Brabhams include the BT46B, which was that? Uh, the B, that was the fan car. Oh, fan no, well, it's the fan car. Yeah. Was well, the fan car the B or the C? Well, my the B was the fan car. Yeah, no, the B was the fan car, yeah. Can we talk about the fan car? Let's get, Let's talk about the fan car. Okay, so the fan car, well, we, I think everybody knows about the fan car. Um, it was just a very clever way of sucking all the air out from underneath the car. Um, and how did he sell it to them? Because you weren't allowed to have a movable aerodynamic device on the car. I've, I've got the story here. So this is 1978, um, yeah. and he's had this idea. And the, the, the key thing about the fan car, and this is Formula One through and through, is that it's clever interpretation of the regulations, finding loopholes. Absolutely. That's what these guys exist yeah. to do. Um, so you weren't allowed movable aero devices, not when aero was that device's primary function. So yes. he thought, aha, and he fitted this fan, 55% of the air went through a rad to cool the car and 45% yeah. effectively sucked the car into the ground, generating downforce. Yeah. Yeah. But its primary yeah. function was for cooling. And he presented that to a lawyer who said, well, anyone would agree that if 55% of the air goes through a rad, the fan's primary yeah, function that's is for cooling. And then it sucked all the... And so I, I, I seem to think that they send it out. So it only, I think it only did one race, which it won. Was it at Anderstorp? Don't know, but it certainly did one and one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I think Gordon told me that they were so worried by about how fast it was that they sent them out in quali on full tanks just to slow it down because they thought if we actually show how fast this thing is, you know, they, they will protect. And he withdrew it. It was ne- People think, oh, the fan car got banned. It never got banned. Um, Bernie withdrew it 
And I can remember Gordon saying to me, it was just as well that it was withdrawn because he kind of regarded that car as his practice car and the one that he had on the drawing board. He said he would have pulled the driver's head off. Um, so... <laughs> Bloody hell. He said, he said the fans were so effective, or the fan was so effective with the skirts um, yeah. and it's powered by the engine and you'd rev the engine up to 12,000 RPM and it would then stationary generate enough downforce, he says, that you could stick it on the ceiling and it would just sit there. It would hold itself against the ceiling. For as long as a flat 12 Alfa Romeo Formula One engine would stand being revved at 12,000 RPM with no air going through it. Which probably wouldn't be very upside down. Which probably wouldn't be very long. It was even so. It was in one um, one fourth gear corner. He says it was thirty miles an hour quicker than everything else. Um, That's insane. And it it really is politics that meant it got banned, wasn't it? Because Bernie was trying to exert an influence over no, no, Formula it, One. It wasn't banned. No, sorry, it, it wasn't. It wasn't banned. banned. No, no. It was politics yeah. that but, meant but it that Brabham got rid of it. It would have been because yeah. Bernie was trying to exert his influence over the rest of the Formula One teams at the time, wasn't he? And so the last thing yeah. he needed to do was upset all the other team bosses. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and we know, we see how Bernie managed to get a hold of Formula One in the sort of years and decades that followed. So it was politic for Bernie yeah. to tell Gordon Murray to get rid of the fan. Yeah. Um, yeah. And another very clever Gordon Murray innovation was refueling and very, very fast pit stops so that they became strategic and he did that in 1982 yeah. so until then you would pit if there's a problem um it, you just lost so much time by coming into the pits there's no way to make it strategic and gordon murray thought well hold on if we can cut the time loss reduce the time loss perhaps there will be an advantage because we don't have to start the race with full tanks we can yeah. swap to faster tires fresh tires halfway through the race and he worked out that the bogey time for a typical circuit would be 26 seconds so if you could minimize the time loss to 26 seconds to come in stop and go out again you will be faster and so they had to work out a way to get fuel into the car quicker to change the wheels quicker and if you could do those two things mid-race pit stops would become a thing yeah and also you know fundamentally if you only have to put half the amount of fuel in the car that means you need a much smaller fuel tank and in a Formula One car, the fuel tank is a considerable component, which means it affects, in, in a beneficial way, the entire package of the car. So you can design a different kind of racing car um, because you just don't have to put this you know, big tank somewhere because it's half the size. Yeah, and that is just the kind of yeah, clever, clever thinking. So they, they refuel, they put the fuel under pressure using beer barrels, actually. So they refueled under pressure um, and they innovated faster wheel guns and wheel nuts so they could get the wheels off really quickly and he also said he says he also had to invent tire heaters because you need well you need your tires to be up to temperature if you're going to stick them on mid-race you can't afford to yeah. take two laps to warm them up can you um yeah so there's some extraordinarily extraordinarily blue sky creative thinking going on in that mind of his very fertile mind yeah and but that he had his failures uh, oh sorry yeah well uh, yeah um uh, yeah, so I, I was just going to say that, that that car, the BT-52, was the first turbo car that he did. Um, and combined with the BT-49, which was the last, um, I think it was the last DFV car. Um, they were the first cars that he designed, which he couldn't drive. Um, because, you know, because the, the frontal area um, and, you know, getting the driver 
you know, as small and as out the way as humanly possible just meant that designing cars that would fit him just didn't work. And I, and I know this because I once drove a BT49 um, and it, it, I think it is the most uncomfortable I've ever been in a car in my life. I wasn't safe to drive it. I could barely get my foot off the accelerator onto the brake um, and it was a miserable experience and the owner didn't want me in the car and it was just, it was just horrible. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was just a way of me getting to say I've driven the BT49. But anyway. And the, the, the 49 um, so, and the 52 oh, were championship winning cars. Yep. Um, For Nelson Pico. Yeah. But the 86, the 1986 BT55 was not a championship winning car. Um, the low line. Yeah. Very, very radical design. Um, yeah. If you look at it now, very low, very flat, um, certainly compared to contemporary cars or cars of the day. Um and the whole point was to increase downforce without adding a load of drag. Um, but it really wasn't a success. It actually, as far as Brabham and Gordon Murray cars go, it's a bit of a disaster. Um, to such an extent that for the British Grand Prix, they actually switched back to the previous car, the BT54. Um, yeah. But he says he believed so profoundly in the, the basic concept that he just needed the right engine. Um, and this is where we get into... Go on. Do you want to jump in? Well, no, I was just going to... I've just... Somebody's going to say this is completely right. It may well be completely right. There was something that he did. Was the beach, Was the low low road... Was it, did it have surface cooling on it? Have you read anything about that? There was a car that he did, which the idea was that instead of having... I thought it was the low I might be wrong. But instead of having, you know, big radiators, which obviously got in the way and need a lot of packaging and weighed stuff, um, that you design bodywork, which would allow the the heat to bleed out through the bodywork so the car would be cooled effectively by its bodywork and you'd have large surface areas of bodywork and this was called surface cooling and i don't think they entirely replaced the radiators maybe just much smaller radiators but i think that was another one of gordon's um not entirely successful designs but i might be wrong sorry That's incredibly clever um so as yeah. i said he really believed in the underlying concept of bt55 he said he just needed the right engine one that would sit very very low um yeah and this is all totally disputed now. And we, this is where we come on to the McLaren MP44. Yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to dwell too much on this because it's such a contentious area. We're not going to. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a contentious issue that has been it's rumbled on for years and years and years. And it's flared yeah. up again quite recently. Basically, the yeah. MP44, so it was the 88 car, wasn't it? Was yeah. maybe the most 15 dominant. Wins, 16 races. Yeah, maybe the most dominant Formula 1 car ever. Um, yeah, and quite who designed it is a contentious thing. Well, well, so there's the there's the American Steve Nichols who says it's his car, and there's Gordon who would say it's his car. And I'm not sure, and I don't know the ins and outs of it, and I'm not going to get into it because I don't, you know, I don't want to upset anyone. And it's all ancient bloody history anyway. But you know, my understanding is that you know, not just then, but for a while previously, and certainly these days, these cars get designed by teams of people. And, you know, there was no question at all that Gordon was the technical director of McLaren at the car at, at the time. So he was in charge. Now, you know, I'm sure Steve Nichols, you know, may, may well have been responsible for its fundamental design, but it would have been overseen by Gordon. And so to me, you know, they both have a claim to it. Now, whether one has more of a claim than the other, or whether one, you know, one is 60% and the other 40 or 70, I just don't know. I don't really care. Um, but, you know, it is... You know, it, it, it's just struck me as being a sort of, you know, a, a spat that has sort of grown up. And it, it, frankly, it wouldn't have grown up if this car hadn't been so, so successful. 
Um, and, you know, one of the reasons that it was so successful is it had that extraordinary Honda engine at the back of it, which neither of them designed. Um, and it had, you know, Senna and Prost driving it, you know, neither of whom was designed by Gordon or, or Steve Nick. So, you know, it, it's these things are a combination of factors. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I think that they both deserve some credit for it. Well, the credit for it. Um, and in what particular portion? I don't know. I'm not sure I care. Yeah. I th- one of the important points is that Murray says the MP44 was inspired to some extent by the BT55 with a similar low line concept, but Nichols disputes that. So what, we're not going to get involved in that. It's interesting, isn't it, that no one disputes who designed the car that doesn't win anything. And yet <laughs> the, one that, the one that wins everything, almost, they, they all want yeah. to take credit for. Um, so after Brabham, he, he went to McLaren. He was only there for three years um, for his... 18th, 19th, and 20th years in Formula One. And he said, um, he said to Ron Dennis when he moved across, I'm only coming for three years, 20, 20 years in F1 is plenty. Um, and even at that point, he was getting tired of F1 and the circus um, and perhaps everything that comes with being an F1 designer. Um, and this story is so well told, we won't tell it again. But after that one race in 88 that they didn't win, um, the Ital- Italian Grand Prix, they were at Lenati Airport, him, Ron Dennis and Mansa Auger, who raised the and idea Crichton of a road Brown. car. Yep. And who's, yeah. And, yeah, okay. Crichton, Crichton Brown, yeah. Um, and so the McLaren F1 was born. Uh, do we need to talk any, at all about McLaren F1? I mean, you've spoken about driving it. Yeah, no, I, 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 don't, think, I, I don't think we do. I've spoken about it already on this podcast. Um, you know, what else can we say about it? It was also you know uh, just an idea of just how extraordinary it was you know is the fact that gordon never designed it to race and yet when customers said we have to be able to race this car and he did a really very lightly modified car i mean it was really it wasn't quite a road car on slicks with a bit of suspension but it wasn't an awful lot more than that and it went and won lamar in fact it was utterly dominant at lamar in 1995 uh, making mclaren after ferrari in 1949 um the only manufacturer to win Le Mans at its first attempt. If you don't include Chenard Ed Welker, which won the first ever Le Mans, so someone was going to get that. But in, in proper terms, Ferrari in 1949, that was a private entry. It had nothing to do with Ferrari. Um, and yeah, the McLaren F1. So that, that, that gives you an idea of just how far ahead of the game the F1 was. You know, in, in a discipline that was never intended to, com- to compete in, it just went and wiped the floor with everything else. Um, he, 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 did, he did also do another car before then. It wasn't his, F1 wasn't his first road car. There was the Rocket. Um, I've driven a Rocket. So a Rocket um, he did with Chris Cruttcraft, the bloke who'd driven the Duckens car at Le Mans, you know, back in 1972. Um, and this was kind of Gordon's idea of the purest form of road car you could get. I mean, even the McLaren F1, you know, it had air conditioning and it had luggage space and it had everything there. And this was Gordon going, you know, he's going to do a road car, which no concessions at all. It's just the lightest road. It weighed 385 kilos. It was, it was well, literally, it was powered by a Yamaha, a one litre Yamaha engine um, with, I think, a six speed gearbox. Might have been five. Um, and to make it go backwards, he basically just reversed all the existing gears. So it would go as fast in reverse as it would go forward, which is how our mate Colin Goodwin 
ended up getting in the Guinness Book of Records for the fastest reverse ever. I think he, I think he did 104 miles an hour in reverse in a rocket, which just goes to show you how totally bonkers Goodwin really is. Um, and I drove it, and it was it was an insane little thing. I, um, and it was unbelievable on the right road. So again, funnily enough, we went back up. Well, no, in fact, we hadn't had the F1, so you know, but we took it to that same road in North Yorkshire, which we used to go through quite a lot. Um, and we had a Caterham in tow, uh, a two-liter HPC, 175 horsepower um, Caterham. And I did a twin test, and I gave it to the Caterham, much to Chris Craft's chagrin. I think probably Gordon's too. And the reason I did was the Caterham was, I think, like half the price. Um, but the rocket was amazing if you were driving it as fast as you possibly could. But if you weren't doing that, there wasn't much point being in it because it literally, it, it didn't do anything. The engine didn't do anything below about 8,000 revs. Um, and, you know, it was, you know, there were no screens or doors or any concessions to comfort at all, although it did ride very well. Um, and the, 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 the Caterham was just a more usable car. Um, you could get more out of it more easily. And yeah, although the rocket ultimately was faster and more fun for almost all people, almost all of the time, the Caterham was just an easier, more exploitable car. So yeah, but I did still love the rocket and I love the idea that it existed. And it was, you know, it was an amazing little thing. This beautiful little space frame chassis, tandem two-seater, although, you know, have pity on the bloke sitting behind. And um yeah, and it was even rarer than the F1. I think they only made 55 rockets and made 64 road-going F1. So, you know, if you see a rocket any time today, it's a very, very rare thing indeed. And ultimately, your twin test verdict, I would say, was proven to be right. I mean, they're still making sevens, and how many of them are out there? Um, yeah. It's, it, as an idea, it, it just had more legs, didn't it? Um, you yeah. mentioned ride quality again, which is a, another Gordon Murray philosophy core to his the way yeah. he designs cars. He doesn't like very stiff, hard-riding cars. No. Um, I want to just mention safety briefly um, from a Formula One point of view, because there's some interesting quotes from him here. Um, I wanted to share them. He said, as an F1 designer, I always try to make cars simple, easy to work on for mechanics and safe. And he says that's where him and Colin Chapman differed. Both were driven by lightweight. But Gordon says he used to do stress calculations to the end of the earth to make sure things wouldn't break. And he says things generally didn't break on Brabham's. Um, no, they didn't. They really didn't. So it's an important point, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. And, you know, I think Colin had this reputation of being quite cavalier in that regard. I mean, there's that old saying, isn't there, that, you know, the perfect race car would be one which was so light it would just collapse into a thousand bits the moment across the, the finishing line. Um, because if it, did, if it did anything else, it would have, um, yeah, it, 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 you know, it um, was made stronger than it needed to be. Um yeah, I don't think that Gordon ever had that philosophy at all. I mean, you know, whereas I think Colin was absolutely unconstrained by all such thoughts. Um, I think in everything that Gordon's ever done, um, you know, he does realise um, that there are human beings involved and the number one priority is to look after them. And he talks about how upset and affected he was by the death of Elio de Angelis um, in a yes. Brabham in 1986, yeah. testing at Paul Ricard. Rear wing yeah. detached at high speeds, um, big crash. It wasn't the crash that killed um, that killed him? It was smoke inhalation. Yeah, but but it was track safe. It was track safety. I mean, you know, he survived the accident, um, but it took them so long to get to him. Um, and you know, that's that's not on Gordon. Yeah, he um, said his his most difficult time as a race car engineer. Losing him had a huge effect on me. 
and his life was lost so needlessly. He, was, he wasn't injured, he had a broken collarbone, but there was no fire safety at the track and he had to watch the car burn. And he says that was the beginning of him wanting to get out of F1 when he'd lost interest, which is totally understandable, isn't it? Mm, um, absolutely. And yeah, and so he ultimately moved away from Formula One and into the, the world of road cars. And we all know what he's achieved in the decades since. Um, fascinating bloke. I've never met him, but I just, I find whenever I hear him talk, he seems to think so clearly and he seems to That's have his thing. priorities. So that's the thing. Perfectly ordered. Um, yeah. He's a breath of fresh He's, air. He, you, you are just, sorry, this is going to sound like I'm sort of blowing smoke, but you are, you're just all the time aware that you're in the presence of someone with a truly great mind. A mind, as you say, clarity, you know, vision, uncomplicated by the things that others agonise over. He'll just go, well, we won't do that. We'll do, you know, he just... Yeah, he does things or he thinks about things in terms of the way he wants to do them and then asks, well, why can't I do that? And if there isn't a good answer to that, then he'll just go and do them that way. Um, And I think it's why his cars are seen to be so authentic um, and, you know, and and also coveted. I mean, I suspect that the F1 is the most valuable road car in the world today. Um, And partly it's because it's incredibly rare, but partly it's because people understand that it's an absolute landmark of design um and and rightly so um so uh, yeah i just hope on, i hope we're still having this conversation in 10 years time when he's 85 and we and, and we're discussing his next um amazing venture whatever it may be because you know even gordon is going to have to embrace the future at some stage he's going to he said you know that after these three series of t33s come out or t34 t30 what are you going to call them you know there's going to have to be a hybrid and then there's going to have to be an ev um, and he's, you know, he, he's got his head around that. And, you know, can you imagine what a Gordon Murray EV is going to be like? I can't. But that's the great thing, isn't it? I haven't got a clue because I don't have a mind which is capable of doing that. But all you know is it's just not going to be like any other EV. And he's just going to have looked at that problem and just thought, well, OK, they're all doing it that way. So we won't do that. Um, let's just look at it from a completely different direction. Um, and it will be whatever it is, it'll be fascinating. Yeah, now more than ever, we need that mind of his, don't we? Um, and we, we look forward to the all-electric T75. That'll be a, an interesting <laughs> car. Um, oh, to be able to think as clearly as him without prejudice, without bias, without being waylaid by what other people think. It'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? Um, it would. Good, there you go. That's Professor Gordon Murray CBE. Brilliant bloke. Um, we'll leave that one there. I enjoyed that. Yeah, yep. it was good. He's a great topic. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, please remember, do us a favor, please, and rate and review the podcast. And also, whichever podcast app you use, please just hit the follow button. It really helps us. It just helps us find a bigger audience. And it means we can spend more time on these podcasts and make them better. Can I, can I just say one? Um, I'm only going to say this, and this is you know, a shameless self-promotion, but um, I discovered in the week that there, I mean, there are various sort of podcast charts Um but uh, Apple have just released their all-time automotive podcast charts. And in the UK, we're number two. And, you know, given that there are, well, they, they only got 250. So there'll probably be plenty on beyond that. But, you know, we're, we're just really, really proud um, that you guys seem to like what we do. Um, and, yeah, we're just going to keep on doing it. So hopefully that's good news. And, um, yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, congratulations, Johnny and Richard. Um, good. We'll leave that one there. Please, everybody, download the Intercooler app and start your free trial. Um, and we'll be back to talk to you all again next week. Yep. See ya.